Welcome to the 44th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 9, Section 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Chapter 9 of Councils and Their Authority There are 14 sections. Section 1 Were I now to concede all that they ask concerning the church, it would not greatly aid them in their object. For everything that is said of the church they immediately transfer to councils, which in their opinion represent the church. Nay, when they contend so doggedly for the power of the church, their only object is to devolve the whole which they extort on the Roman pontiff and his conclave. Before I begin to discuss this question, two points must be briefly premised. First, though I mean to be more rigid in discussing this subject, it is not because I set less value than I ought on ancient councils. I venerate them from my heart, and would have all to hold them in due honor. But there must be some limitation. There must be nothing derogatory to Christ. Moreover, it is the right of Christ to preside over all councils, and not share the honor with any man. Now I hold that he presides only when he governs the whole assembly by his word and spirit. Secondly, in attributing less to councils than my opponents demand, it is not because I have any fear that councils are favorable to their cause and adverse to ours. For as we are amply provided by the word of the Lord with the means of proving our doctrine and overthrowing the whole papacy, and thus have no great need of other aid, so if the case required it, ancient councils furnish us in a great measure with what might be sufficient for both purposes. Section 2. Let us now proceed to the subject itself. If we consult scripture on the authority of councils, there is no promise more remarkable than that which is contained in these words of our Savior, quote, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them, unquote. But this is just as applicable to any particular meeting as to a universal council, and yet the important part of the question does not lie here, but in the condition which is added, viz., that Christ will be in the midst of a council, provided it be assembled in his name. Wherefore, though our opponents should name councils of thousands of bishops, it will little avail them, nor will they induce us to believe that they are, as they maintain, guided by the Holy Spirit, until they make it credible that they assemble in the name of Christ, since it is as possible for wicked and dishonest to conspire against Christ as for good and honest bishops to meet together in his name. Of this we have a clear proof in very many of the decrees which have proceeded from councils, but this will be afterwards seen. At present I only reply in one word that our Savior's promise is made to those only who assemble in his name. How, then, is such an assembly to be defined? 
I deny that those assemble in the name of Christ who, disregarding his command by which he forbids anything to be added to the word of God, are taken from it, determine everything at their own pleasure, who, not contented with the oracles of Scripture, that is, with the only rule of perfect wisdom, devise some novelty out of their own head. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, and Revelation 22, verse 18. Certainly, since our Savior has not promised to be present with all counsels of whatever description, but has given a peculiar mark for distinguishing true and lawful counsels from others, we ought not by any means to lose sight of the distinction. The covenant which God anciently made with the Levitical priests was to teach at his mouth, Malachi 2, verse 7. This he always required of the prophets, and we see also that it was the law given to the apostles. On those who violate this covenant, God bestows neither the honor of the priesthood nor any authority. That my opponents solve this difficulty if they would subject my faith to the decrees of man without authority from the word of God. Section 3. Their idea that the truth cannot remain in the church unless it exists among pastors, and that the church herself cannot exist unless displayed in general councils, is very far from holding true if the prophets have left us a correct description of their own times. In the time of Isaiah there was a church at Jerusalem which the Lord had not yet abandoned. But of pastors he thus speaks, quote, His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, unquote. Isaiah 56, verses 10 and 11. In the same way, Hosea says, quote, The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God, unquote. Hosea 9, verse 8. Here, by ironically connecting them with God, he shows that the pretext of the priesthood was vain. There was also a church in the time of Jeremiah. Let us hear what he says of pastors. Quote, From the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely, unquote. Again, quote, the prophet's prophecy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them, unquote. Jeremiah 6, verse 13, and 14, verse 14. And not to be prolix with quotations, read the whole of his 33rd and 40th chapters. Then, on the other hand, Ezekiel inveighs against them in no milder terms. Quote, there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls, unquote. Quote, her priests have violated my law and profaned mine holy things, unquote. Ezekiel 22, verses 25 and 26. There is more to the same purpose. Similar complaints abound throughout the prophets. Nothing is of more frequent recurrence. Section 4. But perhaps, though this great evil prevailed among the Jews, our age is exempt from it. Would that it were so, but the Holy Spirit declared that it would be otherwise. For Peter's words are clear, quote, but there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily will bring in damnable heresies. Unquote. Second Peter 2, verse 1. See how he predicts impending danger, not from ordinary believers, but from those who should plume themselves on the name of pastors and teachers. Besides, how often did Christ and his apostles foretell that the greatest dangers with which the church was threatened would come from pastors? Matthew 24, verses 11 and 24. Nay, Paul openly declares that Antichrist would have his seat in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, thereby intimating that the fearful calamity of which he was speaking would come only from those who should have their seat in the church as pastors. And in another passage he shows that the introduction of this great evil was almost at hand, for in addressing the elders of Ephesus he says, 
Quote, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Unquote. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. How great corruption might a long series of years introduce among pastors when they could degenerate so much within so short a time. And not to fill my pages with details, we are reminded by the examples of almost every age that the truth is not always cherished in the bosom of pastors, and that the safety of the church depends not on their state. It was becoming that those appointed to preserve the peace and safety of the church should be its presidents and guardians. But it is one thing to perform what you owe, and another to owe what you do not perform. Section 5. Let no man, however, understand me as if I were desirous in everything rashly and unreservedly to overthrow the authority of pastors. All I advise is to exercise discrimination, and not suppose, as a matter of course, that all who call themselves pastors are so in reality. But the Pope, with the whole crew of his bishops, for no other reason but because they are called pastors, shake off obedience to the word of God, invert all things, and turn them hither and thither at their pleasure. Meanwhile, they insist that they cannot be destitute of the light of truth, that the Spirit of God perpetually resides in them, that the church subsists in them and dies with them, as if the Lord did not still inflict his judgments, and in the present day punish the world for its wickedness, in the same way in which he punished the ingratitude of the ancient people, namely, by smiting pastors with astonishment and blindness. Zechariah 12, verse 4. These stupid men understand not that they are just chiming in with those of ancient times who warred with the word of God. For the enemies of Jeremiah thus set themselves against the truth. Quote, Come, and let us devise devices against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Unquote. Jeremiah 18, verse 18. Section 6. Hence it is easy to reply to their allegation concerning general counsels. It cannot be denied that the Jews had a true church under the prophets. But had a general council then been composed of the priests, what kind of appearance would the church have had? We hear the Lord denouncing not against one or two of them, but the whole order. Quote, the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Unquote. Jeremiah 4, verse 9. Again, quote, the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancients. Unquote. Ezekiel 7, verse 26. Again, quote, Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them, unquote, etc. Micah 3, verse 6. Now, had all men of this description been collected together, what spirit would have presided over their meeting? Of this we have a notable instance in the council which Ahab convened, 1 Kings 22, verses 6 and 22. Four hundred prophets were present, but because they had met with no other intention than to flatter the impious king, Satan is sent by the Lord to be a lying spirit in all their mouths. The truth is there unanimously condemned. Micaiah is judged a heretic, is smitten, and cast into prison. So was it done to Jeremiah, and so to the other prophets. Section 7. But there is one memorable example which may suffice for all. In the council which the priests and Pharisees assembled at Jerusalem against Christ, John 11, verse 47, what is wanting insofar as external appearance is concerned. Had there been no church then at Jerusalem, Christ would never have joined in the sacrifices and other ceremonies. A solemn meeting is held. The high priest presides. The whole sacerdotal order take their seats, and yet Christ is condemned and his doctrine is put to flight. This atrocity proves that the church was not at all included in that council. But there is no danger that anything of the kind will happen with us. 
Who has told us so? Too much security in a matter of so great importance lies open to the charge of sluggishness. Nay, when the Spirit, by the mouth of Paul, foretells in distinct terms that a defection will take place, a defection which cannot come until pastors first forsake God, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, why do we spontaneously walk blindfold to our own destruction? Wherefore, we cannot on any account admit that the church consists in a meeting of pastors, as to whom the Lord has nowhere promised that they would always be good, but has sometimes foretold that they would be wicked. When he warns us of danger, it is to make us use greater caution. Section 8. What then, you will say, is there no authority in the definitions of councils? Yes, indeed, for I do not contend that all councils are to be condemned, and all their acts rescinded are, as it is said, made one complete erasure. But you are bringing them all, it will be said, under subordination, and so leaving every one at liberty to receive or reject the decrees of councils as he pleases. By no means. But whenever the decree of a council is produced, the first thing I would wish to be done is to examine at what time it was held, on what occasion, with what intention, and who were present at it. Next, I would bring the subject discussed to the standard of Scripture. And this I would do in such a way that the decision of the council should have its weight and be regarded in the light of a prior judgment, yet not so as to prevent the application of the test which I have mentioned. I wish all had observed the method which Augustine prescribes in his third book against Maximus, when he wished to silence the cavils of this heretic against the decrees of councils. Quote, I ought not to oppose the council of Nice to you, nor ought you to oppose that of Ereminem to me, as prejudging the question. I am not bound by the authority of the latter, nor you by that of the former. That thing contend with thing, cause with cause, reason with reason, on the authority of Scripture, an authority not peculiar to either, but common to all." Unquote. In this way, councils would be duly respected, and yet the highest place would be given to Scripture, everything being brought to it as a test. Thus, those ancient councils of Nice, Constantinople, the first of Ephesus, Chalcedon, and the like, which were held for refuting errors, we willingly embrace, and reverence as sacred, insofar as relates to doctrines of faith, for they contain nothing but the pure and genuine interpretation of Scripture, which the Holy Fathers with spiritual prudence adopted to crush the enemies of religion who had then arisen. In some later councils also we see displayed a true zeal for religion, and, moreover, unequivocal marks of genius, learning, and prudence. But as matters usually become worse and worse, it is easy to see in more modern councils how much the church gradually degenerated from the purity of that golden age. I doubt not, however, that even in those more corrupt ages, councils had their bishops of better character. But it happened with them as the Roman senators of old complained in regard to their decrees. Opinions being numbered, not weighed, the better were obliged to give way to the greater number. They certainly put forth many impious sentiments. There is no need here to collect instances, both because it would be tedious, and because it has been done by others so carefully as not to leave much to be added. Section 9. Moreover, why should I review the contests of counsel with counsel? Nor is there any ground for whispering to me that when counsels are at variance, one or other of them is not a lawful counsel. For how shall we ascertain this? Just, if I mistake not, by judging from Scripture that the decrees are not orthodox. For this alone is the sure law of discrimination. It is now about nine hundred years since the Council of Constantinople, convened under the Emperor Leo, determined that the images set up in temples were to be thrown down and broken to pieces. Shortly after, the Council of Nice, which was assembled by Irene through dislike of the former, decreed that images were to be restored. Which of the two councils shall we acknowledge to be lawful? 
The latter has usually prevailed in security place for images in churches, but Augustine maintains that this could not be done without the greatest danger of idolatry. Epiphanius at a later period speaks much more harshly, for he says it is an unspeakable abomination to see images in a Christian temple. Could those who speak thus approve of that counsel if they were alive in the present day? But if historians speak true and we believe their acts, not only images themselves but the worship of them were there sanctioned. Now it is plain that this decree emanated from Satan. Do they not show by corrupting and resting scripture that they held it in derision? This I have made sufficiently clear in a former part of the work. See Book 1, Chapter 11, Section 14. Be this as it may, we shall never be able to distinguish between contradictory and dissenting counsels, which have been many unless we weigh them all in that balance for men and angels, I mean the word of God. Thus we embrace the counsel of Chalcedon and repudiate the second of Ephesus, because the latter sanctioned the impiety of Eutyches, and the former condemned it. The judgment of these holy men was founded on the scriptures, and while we follow it, we desire that the word of God which illuminated them may now also illuminate us. Let the Romanists now go and boast after their manner, that the Holy Spirit is fixed and tied to their counsels. Section 10. Even in their ancient and purer counsels, there is something to be desiderated, either because the otherwise learned and prudent men who attended, being distracted by the business in hand, did not attend to many things beside, or because occupied with grave and more serious measures, they winked at some of lesser moment, or simply because as men they were deceived through ignorance, or were sometimes carried headlong by some feeling in excess. Of this last case which seems the most difficult of all to avoid, we have a striking example in the Council of Nice, which has been unanimously received as it deserves with the utmost veneration. For when the primary article of our faith was there in peril, and Arius, its enemy, was present, ready to engage any one in combat, and it was of the utmost moment that those who had come to attack Arius should be agreed, they nevertheless, feeling secure amid all these dangers, nay, as it were, forgetting their gravity, modesty, and politeness, laying aside the discussion which was before them as if they had met for the express purpose of gratifying Arius, began to give way to intestine dissensions, and turned the pen, which should have been employed against Arius, against each other. Foul accusations were heard, libels flew up and down, and they never would have ceased from their contention until they had stabbed each other with mutual wounds, had not the Emperor Constantine interfered, and declaring that the investigation of their lives was a matter above his cognizance, repressed their intemperance by flattery rather than censure. In how many respects is it probable that councils held subsequently to this have erred? Nor does the fact stand in need of a long demonstration. Anyone who reads their acts will observe many infirmities, not to use a stronger term. Section 11. Even Leo, the Roman pontiff, hesitates not to charge the council of Chalcedon, which he admits to be orthodox in its doctrines, with ambition and inconsiderate rashness. He denies not that it was lawful, but openly maintains that it might have erred, some may think me foolish in laboring to point out errors of this description, since my opponents admit that counsels may err in things not necessary to salvation. My labor, however, is not superfluous. For although compelled, they admit this in word, yet by obtruding upon us the determination of all counsels in all matters without distinction as the oracles of the Holy Spirit, they exact more than they had at the outset assumed. By thus acting, what do they maintain but just that counsels cannot err, or if they err, it is unlawful for us to perceive the truth or refuse assent to their errors. At the same time, all I mean to infer from what I have said is, that though counsels, otherwise pious and holy, were governed by the Holy Spirit, he yet allowed them to share the lot of humanity, lest we should confide too much in men. 
This is a much better view than that of Gregory Nancy Anson, who says that he never saw any council end well, and asserting that all, without exception, ended ill, he leaves them little authority. There is no necessity for making separate mention of provincial councils, since it is easy to estimate from the case of general councils how much authority they ought to have in framing articles of faith and deciding what kind of doctrine is to be received. Section 12. But our Romanists, when in defending their cause they see all rational grounds slip from beneath them, betake themselves to a last miserable subterfuge. Although they should be dull in intellect and counsel, and most depraved in heart and will, still the word of the Lord remains, which commands us to obey those who have the rule over us. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Is it indeed so? What if I should deny that those who act thus have the rule over us? They ought not to claim for themselves more than Joshua had, who was both a prophet of the Lord and an excellent pastor. Let us then hear in what terms the Lord introduced him to his office. Quote, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. Unquote. Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8. Our spiritual rulers, therefore, will be those who turn not from the law of the Lord to the right hand or the left. But if the doctrine of all pastors is to be received without hesitation, why are we so often and so anxiously admonished by the Lord not to give heed to false prophets? Quote, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. Unquote. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Again, Quote, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Unquote. Matthew 7, verse 15. In vain also would John exhort us to try the spirits, whether they be of God. 1 John 4, verse 1. From this judgment not even angels are exempted. Galatians 1, verse 8. Far less Satan with his lies. And what is meant by the expression, quote, If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Unquote. Matthew 15, verse 14. Does it not sufficiently declare that there is a great difference among the pastors who are to be heard, that all are not to be heard indiscriminately? Wherefore, they have no ground for deterring us by their name in order to draw us into a participation of their blindness, since we see, on the contrary, that the Lord has used special care to guard us from allowing ourselves to be led away by the errors of others, whatever be the mask under which they may lurk. For if the answer of our Savior is true... Blind guides, whether high priests, prelates, or pontiffs, can do nothing more than hurry us over the same precipice with themselves. Wherefore, let no names of councils, pastors, and bishops, which may be used on false pretenses as well as truly, hinder us from giving heed to the evidence both of words and facts, and bringing all spirits to the test of the divine word, that we may prove whether they are of God. Section 13 Having proved that no power was given to the church to set up any new doctrine, let us now treat of the power attributed to them and the interpretation of Scripture. We readily admit that when any doctrine is brought under discussion, there is not a better or surer remedy than for a council of true bishops to meet and discuss the controverted point. There will be much more weight in a decision of this kind to which the pastors of churches have agreed in common after invoking the Spirit of Christ, than if each, adopting it for himself, should deliver it to his people, or a few individuals should meet in private and decide. Secondly, when bishops have assembled in one place, they deliberate more conveniently in common, fixing both the doctrine and the form of teaching it, lest diversity give offense. Thirdly, Paul prescribes this method of determining doctrine. 
For when he gives the power of deciding to a single church, he shows what the course of procedure should be in more important cases, namely, that the churches together are to take common cognizance. And the very feeling of piety tells us that if anyone trouble the church with some novelty in doctrine, and the matter be carried so far that there is danger of a greater dissension, the churches should first meet, examine the question, and at length, after due discussion, decide according to Scripture, which may both put an end to doubt in the people and stop the mouths of wicked and restless men, so as to prevent the matter from proceeding farther. Thus when Arius arose, the council of Nice was convened, and by its authority both crushed the wicked attempts of this impious man, and restored peace to the churches which he had vexed, and asserted the eternal divinity of Christ in opposition to his sacrilegious dogma. Thereafter, when Eunomius and Macedonius raised new disturbances, their madness was met with a similar remedy by the council of Constantinople. The impiety of Nestorius was defeated by the council of Ephesus. In short, this was from the first the usual method of preserving unity in the church whenever Satan commenced his machinations. But let us remember that all ages and places are not favored with an Athanasius, a Basil, a Cyril, and like vindicators of sound doctrine whom the Lord then raised up. Nay, let us consider what happened in the second council of Ephesus when the Eutychian heresy prevailed. Flavianus of holy memory with some pious men was driven into exile, and many similar crimes were committed, because, instead of the Spirit of the Lord, Dioscorus, a factious man of a very bad disposition, presided. But the church was not there. I admit it, for I always hold that the truth does not perish in the church, though it be oppressed by one council, but is wondrously preserved by the Lord to rise again and prove victorious in his own time. I deny, however, that every interpretation of Scripture is true and certain, which has received the votes of a council. Section 14. But the Romanists have another end in view when they say that the power of interpreting Scripture belongs to councils and that without challenge. For they employ it as a pretext for giving the name of an interpretation of Scripture to everything which is determined in councils of purgatory, the intercession of saints, and auricular confession and the like, not one syllable can be found in Scripture. But as all these have been sanctioned by the authority of the Church, or, to speak more correctly, have been received by opinion and practice, every one of them is to be held as an interpretation of Scripture. And not only so, but whatever a council has determined against Scripture is to have the name of an interpretation. Christ bids all drink of the cup which he holds forth in the supper. The council of Constance prohibited the giving it to the people, and determined that the priest alone should drink. Though this is diametrically opposed to the institution of Christ, Matthew 26, verse 26, they will have it to be regarded as his interpretation. Paul terms the prohibition of marriage a doctrine of devils, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 3, and the Spirit elsewhere declares that, quote, marriage is honorable in all, unquote, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Having afterwards interdicted their priests from marriage, they insist on this as a true and genuine interpretation of Scripture, though nothing can be imagined more alien to it. Should anyone venture to open his lips in opposition, he will be judged a heretic, since the determination of the Church is without challenge, and it is unlawful to have any doubt as to the accuracy of her interpretation. Why should I assail such effrontery, to point to it as to condemn it? Their dogma with regard to the power of approving Scripture I intentionally omit, for to censure the oracles of God in this way to the censure of men, and hold that they are sanctioned because they please men, is a blasphemy which deserves not to be mentioned. Besides, I have already touched upon it in Book 1, Chapter 7 and 8, Section 9. I will ask them one question, however. If the authority of Scripture is founded on the approbation of the Church, 
Will they quote the decree of a council to that effect? I believe they cannot. Why then did Arius allow himself to be vanquished at the Council of Nice by passages adduced from the Gospel of John? According to these, he was at liberty to repudiate them, as they had not previously been approved by any general council. They allege an old catalog, which they call the canon, and say that it originated in a decision of the church. But I again ask, in what council was that canon published? Here they must be dumb. Besides, I wish to know what they believe that canon to be, for I see that the ancients are little agreed with regard to it. If effect is to be given to what Jerome says, the Maccabees, Tobit, Ecclesiasticus, and the like must take their place in the Apocrypha, but this they will not tolerate on any account. Chapter 10 of the Power of Making Laws, the Cruelty of the Pope and His Adherents in this respect in tyrannically oppressing and destroying souls. There are 32 sections. Section 1. We come now to the second part of power, which according to them consists in the enacting of laws from which source innumerable traditions have arisen to be as many deadly snares to miserable souls. For they have not been more scrupulous than the scribes and Pharisees in laying burdens on the shoulders of others which they would not touch with their finger, Matthew 23 verse 4 and Luke 11 verse 16. I have elsewhere shown, in Book 3, Chapter 4, Sections 4 through 7, how cruel murder they commit by their doctrine of auricular confession. The same violence is not apparent in other laws, but those which seem most tolerable press tyrannically on the conscience. I say nothing as to the mode in which they adulterate the worship of God, and rob God himself, who is the only lawgiver of his right. The power we have now to consider is whether it be lawful for the church to bind laws upon the conscience. In this discussion, civil order is not touched, but the only point considered is how God may be duly worshipped according to the rule which he has prescribed, and how our spiritual liberty with reference to God may remain unimpaired. In ordinary language, the name of human traditions is given to all decrees concerning the worship of God, which men have issued without the authority of his word. We contend against these, not against the sacred and useful constitutions of the church, which tend to preserve discipline or decency or peace. Our aim is to curb the unlimited and barbarous empire usurped over souls by those who would be thought pastors of the church, but who are in fact its most cruel murderers. They say that the laws which they enact are spiritual, pertaining to the soul, and they affirm that they are necessary to eternal life, but thus the kingdom of Christ, as I lately observed, is invaded. Thus the liberty which he has given to the consciences of believers is completely oppressed and overthrown. I say nothing as to the great impiety with which, to sanction the observance of their laws, they declare that from it they seek forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation, while they make the whole sum of religion and piety to consist in it. What I contend for is that necessity ought not to be laid on consciences in matters in which Christ has made them free, and, unless freed, cannot, as we have previously shown in Book 3, Chapter 19, have peace with God. They must acknowledge Christ their Deliverer as their only King and be ruled by the only law of liberty, namely, the sacred word of the Gospel, if they would retain the grace which they have once received in Christ. They must be subject to no bondage, be bound by no chains. Section 2 These salons, indeed, imagine that their constitutions are laws of liberty, a pleasant yoke, a light burden. But who sees not that this is mere falsehood? They themselves, indeed, feel not the burden of their laws. Having cast off the fear of God, they securely and assiduously disregard their own laws as well as those which are divine. Those, however, who feel any interest in their salvation are far from thinking themselves free so long as they are entangled in these snares. 
We see how great caution Paul employed in this matter, not venturing to impose a fetter in any one thing, and with good reason. He certainly foresaw how great a wound would be inflicted on the conscience if these things should be made necessary which the Lord had left free. On the contrary, it is scarcely possible to count the constitutions which these men have most grievously enforced under the penalty of eternal death, and which they exact with the greatest rigor as necessary to salvation. And while very many of them are most difficult of observance, the whole taken together are impossible, so great is the mass. How then possibly can those on whom this mountain of difficulty lies avoid being perplexed with extreme anxiety and filled with terror? My intention here, then, is to impugn constitutions of this description, constitutions enacted for the purpose of binding the conscience inwardly before God, and imposing religious duties as if they enjoined things necessary to salvation. Section 3. Many are greatly puzzled with this question from not distinguishing with sufficient care between what is called the external form and the form of conscience. See Book 3, Chapter 19, Section 15. Moreover, the difficulty is increased by the terms in which Paul enjoins obedience to magistrates, quote, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, unquote, Romans 13, verse 5, and from which it would follow that civil laws also bind the conscience. But if this were so, nothing that we have said of a spiritual government in the last chapter, and are to say in this, would stand. To solve this difficulty, we must first understand what is meant by conscience. The definition must be derived from the etymology of the term, as when men, with the mind and intellect, apprehend the knowledge of things, they are thereby said to know, and hence the name of science or knowledge is used. So, when they have, in addition to this, a sense of the divine judgment, as a witness not permitting them to hide their sins, but bringing them as criminals before the tribunal of the judge, that sense is called conscience. For it occupies a kind of middle place between God and man, not suffering man to suppress what he knows in himself, but following him out until it bring him to conviction. This is what Paul means when he says that conscience bears witness, quote, our thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing each other, unquote. Romans 2, verse 15. Simple knowledge, therefore, might exist in a man, as it were, shut up, and therefore the sense which sets men before the judgment seat of God has been placed over him as a sentinel to observe and spy out all his secrets that nothing may remain buried in darkness. Hence the old proverb, conscience is a thousand witnesses. For this reason, Peter also uses the, quote, answer of a good conscience towards God, unquote. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. For tranquility of mind, when, persuaded to the grace of Christ, we with boldness present ourselves before God. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says that we have, quote, no more conscience of sins, unquote, that we are freed or acquitted so that sin no longer accuses us. Hebrews 10, verse 2. Section 4. Wherefore, as works have respect to men, so conscience bears reference to God, and hence a good conscience is nothing but inward integrity of heart. In this sense, Paul says that, quote, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, unquote. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. He afterwards, in the same chapter, shows how widely it differs from intellect, saying that, quote, some having put away, unquote, a good conscience, quote, concerning faith, have made shipwreck, unquote. For by these words he intimates that it is a living inclination to worship God, a sincere desire to live piously and holily. Sometimes, indeed, it is extended to men also, as when Paul declares, quote, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men, unquote. Acts 14, verse 16. 
But this is said because the benefits of a good conscience flow forth and reach even to men. Properly speaking, however, it respects God alone, as I have already said. Hence a law may be said to bind the conscience when it simply binds a man without referring to men or taking them into account. For example, God enjoins us not only to keep our mind chaste and pure from all lust, but prohibits every kind of obscenity in word and all external lasciviousness. This law my conscience is bound to observe, though there were not another man in the world. Thus he who behaves intemperately not only sins by setting a bad example to his brethren, but stands convicted in his conscience before God. Another rule holds in the case of things which are in themselves indifferent, for we ought to abstain when they give offense, but conscience is free. Thus Paul says of meat consecrated to idols, Quote, If any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. Unquote. Quote, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 28 and 29. A believer would sin if, after being warned, he should still eat such kind of meat. But however necessary abstinence may be in respect of a brother as prescribed by the Lord, conscience ceases not to retain its liberty. We see how the law, while binding the external work, leaves the conscience free. Section 5. Let us now return to human laws. If they are imposed for the purpose of forming a religious obligation, as if the observance of them was in itself necessary, we say that the restraint thus laid on the conscience is unlawful. Our consciences have not to do with men, but with God only. Hence the common distinction between the earthly form and the form of conscience. When the whole world was enveloped in the thickest darkness of ignorance, it was still held, like a small ray of light which remained unextinguished, that conscience was superior to all human judgments although this, which was acknowledged in word, was afterwards violated in fact, yet God was pleased that there should even then exist an attestation to liberty, exempting the conscience from the tyranny of man. But we have not yet explained the difficulty which arises from the words of Paul. For if we must obey princes not only from fear of punishment, but for conscience' sake, it seems to follow that the laws of princes have dominion over the conscience. If this is true, the same thing must be affirmed of ecclesiastical laws. I answer that the first thing to be done here is to distinguish between the genus and the species. For though individual laws do not reach the conscience, yet we are bound by the general command of God which enjoins us to submit to magistrates. And this is the point on which Paul's discussion turns, viz., that magistrates are to be honored because they are ordained of God. Romans 13 verse 1. Meanwhile, he does not at all teach that the laws enacted by them reach to the eternal government of the soul, since he everywhere proclaims that the worship of God and the spiritual rule of living righteously are superior to all the decrees of men. Another thing also worthy of observation, and depending on what has been already said, is that human laws, whether enacted by magistrates or by the church, are necessary to be observed. I speak of such as are just and good, but do not, therefore, in themselves bind the conscience, because the whole necessity of observing them respects the general end and consists not in the things commanded. Very different, however, is the case of those who prescribe a new form of worshiping God and introduce necessity into things that are free. Section 6. Such, however, are what in the present day are called ecclesiastical constitutions by the papacy, and are brought forward as part of the true and necessary worship of God. But as they are without number, so they form innumerable fetters to bind and ensnare the soul. 
Though, in expounding the law, we have adverted to this subject, see Book 3, Chapter 4, Section 5, yet as this is more properly the place for a full discussion of it, I will now study to give a summary of it as carefully as I can. I shall, however, omit the branch relating to the tyranny with which false bishops arrogate to themselves the right of teaching whatever they please, having already considered it as far as seemed necessary, but shall treat at length of the power which they claim of enacting laws. The pretext, then, on which our false bishops burden the conscience with new laws is that the Lord has constituted them spiritual legislators and given them the government of the church. Hence they maintain that everything which they order and prescribe must of necessity be observed by the Christian people, that he who violates their commands is guilty of a twofold disobedience, being a rebel both against God and the church. Assuredly, if they were true bishops, I would give them some authority in this matter, not so much as they demand, but so much as is requisite for duly arranging the polity of the church. But since they are anything but what they would be thought, they cannot possibly assume anything to themselves, however little, without being in excess. But as this also has been elsewhere shown, let us grant for the present that whatever power true bishops possess justly belongs to them. Still, I deny that they have been set over believers as legislators to prescribe a rule of life at their own hands, or bind the people committed to them to their decrees. When I say this, I mean that they are not at all entitled to insist that whatever they devise without authority from the word of God shall be observed by the church as matter of necessity. Since such power was unknown to the apostles, and was so often denied to the ministers of the church by our Lord himself, I wonder how any have dared to usurp, and dare in the present day to defend it, without any precedent from the apostles and against the manifest prohibition of God. Chapter 7 Everything relating to a perfect rule of life the Lord has so comprehended in his law, that he has left nothing for men to add to the summary there given. His object in doing this was, first, that since all rectitude of conduct consists in regulating all our actions by his will as a standard, he alone should be regarded as the master and guide of our life, and, secondly, that he might show that there is nothing which he more requires of us than obedience. For this reason James says, quote, He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law, unquote. Quote, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, unquote. James 4, verses 11 and 12. We hear how God claims it as his own peculiar privilege to rule us by his laws. This had been said before by Isaiah, though somewhat obscurely. Quote, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Unquote. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Both passages show that the power of life and death belongs to him who has power over the soul. Nay, James clearly expresses this. This power no man may assume to himself. God, therefore, to whom the power of saving and destroying belongs, must be acknowledged as the only king of souls, or, as the words of Isaiah express it, he is our king and judge and lawgiver and savior. So Peter, when he reminds pastors of their duty, exhorts them to feed the flock without lording it over the heritage. 1 Peter 5, verse 2, meaning by heritage, the body of believers. If we duly consider that it is unlawful to transfer to man what God declares to belong only to himself, we shall see that this completely cuts off all the power claimed by those who would take it upon them to order anything in the church without authority from the word of God. Section 8. Moreover, since the whole question depends on this, that God being the only lawgiver, it is unlawful for men to assume that honor to themselves, it will be proper to keep in mind the two reasons for which God claims this solely for himself. The one reason is that his will is to us the perfect rule of all righteousness and holiness, and that thus in the knowledge of it we have a perfect rule of life. 
The other reason is that when the right and proper method of worshiping him is in question, he whom we ought to obey and on whose will we ought to depend alone has authority over our souls. When these two reasons are attended to, it will be easy to decide what human constitutions are contrary to the word of the Lord. Of this description are all those which are devised as part of the true worship of God, and the observance of which is bound upon the conscience as of necessary obligation. Let us remember then to weigh all human laws in this balance, if we would have a sure test which will not allow us to go astray. The former reason is urged by Paul in the epistle to the Colossians against the false apostles who attempted to lay new burdens on the churches. The second reason he more frequently employs in the epistle to the Galatians is a similar case. In the epistle to the Colossians, then, he maintains that the doctrine of the true worship of God is not to be sought from men because the Lord has faithfully and fully taught us in what way he is to be worshipped. To demonstrate this, he says in the first chapter, that in the gospel is contained all wisdom, that the man of God may be made perfect in Christ. In the beginning of the second chapter, he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and from this he concludes that believers should beware of being led away from the flock of Christ by vain philosophy, according to the constitutions of men. Colossians 2, verse 10. In the end of the chapter, he still more decisively condemns all Greek word, Epsilon, Theta, Epsilon, Lambda, Omicron, Theta, Rho, Eta, Sigma, Kappa, Epsilon, Iota, Alpha, Sigma, Thelo, Thresci, that is, fictitious modes of worship which men themselves devise or receive from others, and all precepts whatsoever which they presume to deliver at their own hand concerning the worship of God. We hold, therefore, that all constitutions are impious in the observance of which the worship of God is pretended to be placed. The passages in the Galatians in which he insists that fetters are not to be bound on the conscience, which ought to be ruled by God alone, are sufficiently plain, especially chapter 5. Let it therefore suffice to refer to them. Section 9. But that the whole matter may be made plainer by examples, it will be proper, before we proceed, to apply the doctrine to our own times. The constitutions which they call ecclesiastical, and by which the Pope, with his adherents, burdens the Church, we hold to be pernicious and impious, while our opponents defend them as sacred and salutary. Now there are two kinds of them, some relating to ceremonies and rites, and others more especially to discipline. Have we then any just cause for impugning both? Assuredly a juster cause than we could wish. First, do not their authors themselves distinctly declare that the very essence of the worship of God, so to speak, is contained in them? For what end do they bring forward their ceremonies but just that God may be worshipped by them? Nor is this done merely by error in the ignorant multitude, but with the approbation of those who hold the place of teachers. I am not now adverting to the gross abominations by which they have plotted the adulteration of all godliness, but they would not deem it to be so atrocious a crime to err in any minute tradition did they not make the worship of God subordinate to their fictions since Paul then declares it to be intolerable that the legitimate worship of God should be subjected to the will of men, wherein do we err when we are unable to tolerate this in the present day, especially when we are enjoined to worship God according to the elements of this world, a thing which Paul declares to be adverse to Christ. Colossians 2, verse 20. On the other hand, the mode in which they lay consciences under the strict necessity of observing whatever they enjoin is not unknown. When we protest against this, we make common cause with Paul, who will on no account allow the consciences of believers to be brought under human bondage. Section 10. 
Moreover, the worst of all is that when once religion begins to be composed of such vain fictions, the perversion is immediately succeeded by the abominable depravity with which our Lord upbraids the Pharisees of making the commandment of God void through their traditions. Matthew 15, verse 3. I am unwilling to dispute with our present legislators in my own words. Let them gain the victory if they can clear themselves from this accusation of Christ. But how can they do so, seeing they regard it as immeasurably more wicked to allow the year to pass without auricular confession, and to have spent it in the greatest iniquity, to have infected their tongue with a slight tasting of flesh on Friday, than to have daily polluted the whole body with whoredom, to have put their hand to honest labor on a day consecrated to some one or other of their saintlings, and to have constantly employed all their members in the greatest crimes? for a priest to be united to one in lawful wedlock than to be engaged in a thousand adulteries, to have failed in performing a votive pilgrimage than to have broken faith in every promise, not to have expended profusely on the monstrous, superfluous, and useless luxury of churches, and to have denied the poor in their greatest necessities, to have passed an idol without honor than to have treated the whole human race with contumely, not to have muttered long unmeaning sentences at certain times than never to have framed one proper prayer, what is meant by making the word of God void by tradition, if this is not done when recommending the ordinances of God only frigidly and perfunctorily, they nevertheless studiously and anxiously urge strict obedience to their own ordinances, as if the whole power of piety was contained in them. When vindicating the transgression of the divine law with trivial satisfactions, they visit the minutest violation of one of their decrees with no lighter punishment than imprisonment, exile, fire, or sword. When neither severe nor inexorable against the despisers of God, they persecute to extremity with implacable hatred those who despise themselves, and so train all those whose simplicity they hold in thraldom, that they would sooner see the whole law of God subverted than one iota of what they call the precepts of the church infringed. First, there is a grievous delinquency in this, that one contemns, judges, and casts off his neighbor for trivial matters, matters which, if the judgment of God is to decide, are free. But now, as if this were a small evil, those frivolous elements of this world, as Paul terms them in his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 4, verse 9, are deemed of more value than the heavenly oracles of God. He who is all but acquitted for adultery is judged in meat, and he to whom whoredom is permitted is forbidden to marry. This, forsooth, is all that is gained by that prevaricating obedience, which only turns away from God to the same extent that it inclines to men. Section 11 there are other two grave vices which we disapprove in these constitutions. First, they prescribe observances which are in a great measure useless, and are sometimes absurd. Secondly, by the vast multitude of them, pious consciences are oppressed, and being carried back to a kind of Judaism, so cling to shadows that they cannot come to Christ. My allegation that they are useless and absurd will, I know, scarcely be credited by carnal wisdom, to which they are so pleasing that the church seems to be altogether defaced when they are taken away. But this is just what Paul says, that they, quote, have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 23, a most salutary admonition of which we ought never to lose sight. Human traditions, he says, deceive by an appearance of wisdom. Whence this show? Just that being framed by men, the human mind recognizes in them that which is its own, and embraces it when recognized more willingly than anything, however good, which is less suitable to its vanity. Secondly, that they seem to be a fit training to humility while they keep the minds of men groveling on the ground under their yoke, hence they have another recommendation. 
Lastly, because they seem to have a tendency to curb the will of the flesh and to subdue it by the rigor of abstinence, they seem to be wisely devised. But what does Paul say to all this? Does he pluck off those masks, lest the simple should be deluded by a false pretext? Deeming it sufficient for their refutation to say that they were devices of men, he passes all these things without refutation as things of no value. Nay, because he knew that all fictitious worship is condemned in the church, and is the more suspected by believers, the more pleasing it is to the human mind, because he knew that this false show of outward humility differs so widely from true humility that it can be easily discerned, Finally, because he knew that this tutelage is valued at no more than bodily exercise, he wished the very things which commended human traditions to the ignorant to be regarded by believers as the refutation of them. Section 12. Thus, in the present day, not only the unlearned vulgar, but everyone in proportion as he is inflated by worldly wisdom, is wonderfully captivated by the glare of ceremonies, while hypocrites and silly women think that nothing can be imagined better or more beautiful. But those who thoroughly examine them and weigh them more truly according to the rule of godliness in regard to the value of all such ceremonies know, first, that they are trifles of no utility, secondly, that they are impostures which delude the eyes of the spectators with empty show. I am speaking of those ceremonies which the Roman masters will have to be great mysteries, while we know by experience that they are mere mockery. Nor is it strange that their authors have gone the length of deluding themselves and others by mere frivolities, because they have taken their model partly from the dreams of the Gentiles, partly, like apes, have rashly imitated the ancient rites of the Mosaic Law, with which we have nothing more to do than with the sacrifices of animals and other similar things. Assuredly, were there no other proof, no sane man would expect any good from such an ill-assorted farrago. And the case itself plainly demonstrates that very many ceremonies have no other use than to stupefy the people rather than teach them. In like manner to those new canons which pervert discipline rather than preserve it, hypocrites attach much importance. But a closer examination will show that they are nothing but the shadowy and evanescent phantom of discipline. Section 13. To come to the second fault, who sees not that ceremonies, by being heaped one upon another, have grown to such a multitude that it is impossible to tolerate them in the Christian church? Hence it is that in ceremonies a strange mixture of Judaism is apparent, while other observances prove a deadly snare to pious minds. Augustine complained that in his time, while the precepts of God were neglected, prejudice everywhere prevailed to such an extent that he who touched the ground barefoot during his octave was censured more severely than he who buried his wits in wine, he complained that the church, which God in mercy wished to be free, was so oppressed that the condition of the Jews was more tolerable. Had that holy man fallen on our day, in what terms would he have deplored the bondage now existing? For the number is tenfold greater, and each iota is exacted a hundred times more rigidly than then. This is the usual course. When once those perverse legislators have usurped authority, they make no end of their commands and prohibitions until they reach the extreme of harshness. This Paul elegantly intimated by these words, quote, If you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. Unquote. Colossians 2, verses 20 and 21. For while the word, Greek word, Alpha, Pi, Tau, Epsilon, Sigma, Theta, Alpha, Iota, Eptesthi, signifies both to eat and to touch, it is doubtless taken in the former sense that there may not be a superfluous repetition. Here, therefore, he most admirably describes the progress of false apostles. The way in which superstition begins is this. They forbid not only to eat, but even to chew gently. After they have obtained this, they forbid even to taste. 
This also being yielded to them, they deem it unlawful to touch, even with a finger. Section 14. We justly condemn this tyranny in human constitutions, in consequence of which miserable consciences are strangely tormented by innumerable edicts, and the excessive exaction of them. Of the canons relating to discipline we have spoken elsewhere. See above, section 12, also chapter 12. What shall I say of ceremonies, the effect of which has been that we have almost buried Christ and returned to Jewish figures? Quote, Our Lord Christ, says Augustine, bound together the society of his new people by sacraments, very few in number, most excellent in signification, most easy of observance. Unquote. How widely different this simplicity is from the multitude and variety of rites in which we see the church entangled in the present day cannot well be told. I am aware of the artifice by which some acute men excuse this perverseness. They say that there are numbers among us equally rude as any among the Israelitish people, and that for their sakes has been introduced this tutelage, which though the stronger may do without, they, however, ought not to neglect, seeing that it is useful to weak brethren. I answer that we are not unaware of what is due to the weakness of brethren, but on the other hand we object that the method of consulting for the weak is not to bury them under a great mass of ceremonies. It was not without cause that God distinguished between us and his ancient people by training them like children by means of signs and figures, and training us more simply without so much external show. Paul's words are, quote, the heir as long as he is a child, unquote, quote, is under tutors and governors, unquote. Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. This was the state of the Jews under the law. But we are like adults who, being free from tutory and curatory, have no need of puerile rudiments. God certainly foresaw what kind of people he was to have in his church, and in what way they were to be governed. Now he distinguished between us and the Jews in the way which has been described. Therefore it is a foolish method of consulting for the ignorant to set up the Judaism which Christ has abrogated. This dissimilitude between the ancient and his new people Christ expressed when he said to the woman of Samaria, quote, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, unquote. John 4, verse 23. This, no doubt, had always been done, but the new worshippers differ from the old in this, that while under Moses the spiritual worship of God was shadowed and, as it were, entangled by many ceremonies, these have been abolished, and worship is now more simple. Those, accordingly, who confound this distinction subvert the order instituted and sanctioned by Christ. Therefore you will ask, Are no ceremonies to be given to the more ignorant as a help to their ignorance? I do not say so for I think that help of this description is very useful to them. All I contend for is the employment of such a measure as may illustrate, not obscure Christ. Hence, a few ceremonies have been divinely appointed, and these by no means laborious, in order that they may evince a present Christ. To the Jews a greater number were given, that they might be images of an absent Christ. In saying he was absent, I mean not in power, but in the mode of expression. Therefore, to secure due moderation, it is necessary to retain that fewness in number, facility in observance, and significancy of meaning, which consists in clearness. Of what use is it to say that this is not done? The fact is obvious to every eye. Section 15. I here say nothing of the pernicious opinions with which the minds of men are imbued, as that these are sacrifices by which propitiation is made to God, by which sins are expiated, by which righteousness and salvation are procured. It will be maintained that things good in themselves are not vitiated by errors of this description, since in acts expressly enjoined by God, similar errors may be committed. There is nothing, however, more unbecoming than the fact that works devised by the will of man are held in such estimation as to be thought worthy of eternal life. 
The works commanded by God receive a reward because the lawgiver himself accepts of them as marks of obedience. They do not therefore take their value from their own dignity or their own merit, but because God sets this high value on our obedience toward him. I am here speaking of that perfection of works which is commanded by God but is not performed by men. The works of the law are accepted merely by the free kindness of God because the obedience is infirm and defective. But as we are not here considering how far works avail without Christ, let us omit that question. I again repeat, as properly belonging to the present subject, that whatever commendation works have, they have it in respect of obedience, which alone God regards as he testifies by the prophet. Quote, I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice. Unquote. Jeremiah 7, verse 22. Of fictitious works he elsewhere speaks. Quote, Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Unquote. Isaiah 55, 2 and 29, verse 13. Again, Quote, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Unquote. Matthew 15, verse 9. They cannot, therefore, excuse themselves from the charge of allowing wretched people to seek in these external frivolities a righteousness which they may present to God, and by which they may stand before the celestial tribunal. Besides, it is not a fault deservedly stigmatized that they exhibit unmeaning ceremonies as a kind of stage play or magical incantation. For it is certain that all ceremonies are corrupt and noxious, which do not direct men to Christ. But the ceremonies in use in the papacy are separated from doctrine, so that they confine men to signs altogether devoid of meaning. Lastly, if the belly is an ingenious contriver, it is clear that many of their ceremonies have been invented by greedy priests as lures for catching money. But whatever be their origin... They are all so prostituted to filthy lucre that a great part of them must be rescinded if we would prevent a profane and sacrilegious traffic from being carried on in the church. Section 16. Although I seem not to be delivering the general doctrine concerning human constitutions, but adapting my discourse wholly to our own age, yet nothing has been said which may not be useful to all ages. For whenever men begin the superstitious practice of worshipping God with their own fictions, all the laws enacted for this purpose forthwith degenerate into those gross abuses. For the curse which God denounces these to strike those who worship him with the doctrines of men with stupor and blindness is not confined to any one age, but applies to all ages. The uniform result of this blindness is that there is no kind of absurdity escaped by those who, despising of many admonitions of God, spontaneously entangle themselves in these deadly fetters. But if, without any regard to circumstances, you would simply know the character belonging at all times to those human traditions which ought to be repudiated by the church and condemned by all the godly, the definition which we formerly gave is clear and certain, viz., that they include all the laws enacted by men without authority from the word of God for the purpose either of prescribing the mode of divine worship or laying a religious obligation on the conscience as enjoining things necessary to salvation. If to one or both of these are added the other evils of obscuring the clearness of the gospel by their multitude, of giving no edification, of being useless and frivolous occupations rather than true exercises of piety, of being set up for sordid ends and filthy lucre, of being difficult of observance and contaminated by pernicious superstitions, we shall have the means of detecting the quantity of mischief which they occasion. Section 17. I understand what their answer will be, viz. that these traditions are not from themselves, but from God. For to prevent the church from erring, it is guided by the Holy Spirit, whose authority resides in them. 
this being conceded, it at the same time follows that their traditions are revelations by the Holy Spirit, and cannot be disregarded without impiety and contempt of God, and that they may not seem to have attempted anything without high authority, they will have it to be believed that a great part of their observances is derived from the apostles, for they contend that in one instance they have a sufficient proof of what the apostles did in other cases. The instance is, when the apostles assembled in council, announced to all the Gentiles as the opinion of the council that they should, quote, abstain from pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood, unquote. Acts 15, verses 20 and 29. We have already explained how, in order to extol themselves, they falsely assumed the name of church. See chapter 8, sections 10 through 13. If, in regard to the present cause, we remove all masks and glosses, a thing indeed which ought to be our first care and also is our highest interest, and consider what kind of church Christ wishes to have, that we may form and adapt ourselves to it as a standard, it will readily appear that it is not a property of the church to disregard the limits of the word of God and wanton and luxuriate in enacting new laws. Does not the law which was once given to the church endure forever? Quote, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Unquote. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. And in another place. Quote, add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Unquote. Proverbs 30, verse 6. Since they cannot deny that this was said to the church, what else do they proclaim but their contumacy? When, notwithstanding of such prohibitions, they profess to add to the doctrine of God, and dare to intermingle their own with it. Far be it from us to assent to the falsehood by which they offer such insult to the church. Let us understand that the name of church is falsely pretended wherever men contend for that rash human license which cannot confine itself within the boundaries prescribed by the word of God, but petulantly breaks out and has recourse to its own inventions. In the above passage there is nothing involved, nothing obscure, nothing ambiguous. The whole church is forbidden to add to or take from the word of God in relation to his worship and salutary precepts. But that was said merely of the law which was succeeded by the prophets and the whole gospel dispensation. This I admit that I at the same time add that these are fulfillments of the law rather than additions or diminutions. Now if the Lord does not permit anything to be added to or taken from the ministry of Moses, though wrapped up, if I may so speak, in many folds of obscurity until he furnish a clearer doctrine by his servants the prophets, and at last by his beloved Son, why should we not suppose that we are much more strictly prohibited from making any addition to the law, the prophets, the psalms, and the gospel? The Lord cannot forget himself, and it is long since he declared that nothing is so offensive to him as to be worshipped by human inventions. Hence those celebrated declarations of the prophets, which ought continually to ring in our ears, quote, I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, unquote. Jeremiah 7, verses 22 and 23. Quote, I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Unquote. Jeremiah 11, verse 7. There are other passages of the same kind, but the most noted of all is, Quote, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Unquote. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. 
It is easy, therefore, to prove that whenever human inventions in this respect are defended by the authority of the church, they cannot be vindicated from the charge of impiety, and that the name of church is falsely assumed. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.